0: All right, all right, all right. I'm Tony Miller, and this is the Miller Meets World podcast, where I talk to brave people with inspiring stories and big impact. Now is a challenging time for all of us, and it's a time to support local small businesses. I want to give a shout out to a few in Santa Barbara, and on behalf of some of my recent guests, a few elsewhere in the country. Grab a delicious and healthy breakfast, lunch, or dinner to go from Savoy Cafe and Deli on Figueroa Street in Santa Barbara. Boone Graphics for all your printed communications. Do you have a senior graduating this year? It's a special event, and this year is different, so get a yard sign to celebrate the occasion and let everyone know how proud you are. Call Boone Graphics at 805-683-2349 or visit Graphics.net. To upcycle is to reuse material in such a way that a product of a higher quality or value than the original is created. Get delicious homemade sourdough bread made from upcycled spent grains from the local brewery Draftsman. Pick it up at Mosaic on State Street in Santa Barbara. Cricket shirts straight out of Austin. Classic vintage style meets cool easy comfort. Whether you're on the links or hanging with your bros wherever you consider the 19th hole, visit cricketshirts.com. And finally, Frontline Foods. Save local restaurants who've been impacted by shelter-in-place orders while supporting those doing battle on the front lines. Frontline Foods is a grassroots organization that raises money from the community to pay local restaurants to prepare meals for the heroes responding to the COVID-19 crisis. Now in 49 cities and over 190,000 meals delivered. Visit FrontlineFoods.org to see how you can help. Enjoy the show. My guests today are co-authors of a new book titled Sleeping Bees, Why Doing Nothing Matters. Spike Gillespie and Steve Eckelman met in Austin, Texas. Spike has authored nine books and many articles for major publications such as the New York Times, National Geographic, and the Austin Chronicle. Steve is a writer and a producer. In 2018, he won an Emmy Award for Outstanding Historical Documentary for Tower, an animated, dramatic account of a sniper opening fire from atop the University of Texas Tower in 1966. As Spike and Steve were concluding the book, COVID-19 stay-at-home orders began, and suddenly many people were forced to do nothing. Spike and Steve, I've really been enjoying your book. Thank you for being here.
1: Thanks for but having Tom, us.
0: Steve, you're the inspiration for this book. So I, I want to ask you, what what is doing nothing?
2: It's a good question. And I think it's one that's been labeled incorrectly. Nobody's ever doing nothing, but people are embarrassed to say that they're doing nothing. And so um, for me, what, doing nothing is the first part of it. It's changing the narrative of what the word means. It's not a bad word. It's not a loaded word. It's a word that incorporates many things. It can be uh, something we do every day, which is sleep. We're definitely doing something then. Um, It can be moments in between doing things. For example, I know we had, run across examples of professions where nothing is, and activities where nothing is part of, of the activity like surfing and the amount of time surfing is minuscule to the time in between surfing. And the value of the in between time is just as important culturally and personally to surfers as the time is when they're on the board and on a wave this book's an opportunity to reframe the word give ourselves permission to be more aware of it during our day when maybe we're in the shower or we're driving we're not doing nothing we're not always getting ready to do the next thing and then in those pauses we can kind of slow down and have a more regulated pace to the day
0: that makes okay that makes sense Spike, your narrative in the book is really thorough. So I want to ask you, why does doing nothing matter?
1: I'm still discovering every day for real about that. But why it matters to me, to me personally in my life is that, as I described in the book, I really, truly have been an overachiever since, you know, probably before kindergarten. And I, now that I'm practicing doing nothing and I see um, my quality of life has improved tremendously. And it's also this lesson in um, the world is not going to fall apart without me. And I don't, I I hopefully didn't come at my overachieving and over helpfulness from an ego place, although there's probably some of that. But it's really nice to know um, that the the weight of the world doesn't have to be on my shoulders. And then In doing nothing, I really have a much greater appreciation for many things. A lot, my gratitude is is much deeper.
0: Okay. We're going to talk more about nothing, but first I want to talk about the title. There are so many great things about this book. I think you do a wonderful job of really giving life to a kind of perceived lifeless subject. And the title is the first hint that we're in for a surprisingly vigorous ride tell us about the title and what it represents
2: i have to thank instagram for to the idea for the title which was i was just kind of wandering around on my iphone my, on my phone looking at photographs and came across one of a flower uh, with bees sleeping in it and it's by joe neely who is a very good wildlife photographer. I looked at that and I was amazed. I, I mean, I did not know that bees slept in flowers. I, I know that now. <laughs> and I thought they would have gone home to their hive to sleep. Um, so it was just so touching that, and they're kind of held in a cup almost of the flower. And it was just I kind of blew me away dimensionally because it's also where their source of life is, is the nectar in the in the flower, and they're just sleeping right there. Um, yeah. So beyond that, behind the, the whole thing kind of blew me away. And then I looked up do bees sleep because I'd never even thought of them sleeping. And we only know them by their cliché of busy bees. Mm-hmm and so i learned that bees sleep from five to eight hours a night and that if they don't they become sloppy and they make bad decisions so that kind of encapsulated part of the theme of the book and i thought it would make interesting as you said kind of curiosity inviting cover and title
0: yeah yeah it is and it all is very um intriguing and um beautiful and I think there's a, a good chance that, that people looking at the doing nothing aspect would think this doesn't apply to me and they might take a pass. But when you use the analogy of bees and the imagery that you've chosen, it makes the topic more appealing and attractive and breaks down that barrier. So it's worked well for you in that sense too. There's, there's wisdom in this book and as you noted, doing nothing is not synonymous with being completely unproductive. Interpretations and practices are going to be personal, and you cover many aspects in this book. So let's talk about several of them. First of all, does doing nothing require a spiritual mindfulness, or can it be completely empty, a void?
1: I think it can be a void. I personally have been studying Buddhism for a really long time. And I like to come at it from a mindfulness um, Buddhist perspective, but there's no requirement for that or we're not building this as here's a spiritual guide for you. We invite people to make their own plan and take from it what they will. And I think the best example for me is that even though it, I feel like it feeds my own personal spiritual journey, there are plenty of times where I'm sitting, staring at the walls, and I'm remembering what my friend Angel said to me, which is, staring at the walls is great. So when I'm staring at the walls, I'm not necessarily feeling like I'm on the path to enlightenment. I'm thinking, whoa, check it out. I'm staring at
0: the walls. (laughs) That's funny. So Spike, since you're the kind of the writer by practice, by um, work experience, um, is writing considered doing nothing?
1: Absolutely not. (laughs) Although, to tie it into something else that we um, discuss in the book, a lot of times, so if I give myself permission to do nothing, and once again, like, we're never actually doing nothing. But if I'm taking a walk with my dogs, I've been taking daily walks, I don't know, for 25 or 30 years with occasional exceptions, but I walk almost every day. And so in some ways, it's so routine to me that i can i have a choice i can either really pay attention to what's in front of me the trees all the wildlife out here in the country or i can sort of get into a trance and when that happens i'm in what i call flow sometimes like fully formed passages will come into my head rather than being like sitting at my keyboard working really hard in my brain what am i going to write what am i going to write when i give myself permission to just sit around or take a long walk or swimming that's a place that feels like a nothingness to me Uh, and then um that's where the writing feels effortless right right there's nothing but right there's some
0: there's some place so basically there's sort of different levels of it or there's different times or you the one activity could at times not be doing nothing and while at other times it is doing nothing
2: i'll jump in does nothing need to be spiritual and i would say definitely not but it's a personal decision in the book we talk about how examples in history about um nothingness and doing nothing is encouraged which is one of the most obvious examples is is sabbath for centuries as a day of rest and we recognize that that's really difficult in today's world so we encourage people and we're only borrowing the term sabbath uh, just because it's it's a well-known word not in a re- religious way but We'd encourage people to take micro Sabbaths, and that could be 10 minutes, that could be a minute, Mm -hmm. or that could be an hour, and it could be any day. And what happens is eventually that becomes a kind of a routine, and we start recognizing longer moments in the day that are times of rest almost. And what builds up by the end of one week, you may have built up a couple of hours in your you know nothing piggy bank it's helped me a lot to do that i take micro pauses i guess throughout the day is what i call them
0: sleeping bees is an instructive and insightful step-by-step guide so i wanted to ask one of you to highlight some of the steps
1: something we're getting a lot of feedback on and we also got this feedback from our early readers is we encourage people to give themselves permission and uh, when I teach writing classes, I often tell my students, I can't teach you how to write, but I can give you permission. I, I have this theory that because as children, we often are forced to, to ask permission for many things, some of them practical, some of them rote, that sometimes we carry that on into adulthood. I certainly do. Like whenever I'm going to make a big purchase, a house, a car or something, I, I'm an independent adult. <laughs> I've been independent for forty years, and yet I still feel like, am I supposed to be asking someone if I'm allowed to do this? Mm-hmm. so i I really apply that principle to many areas of my life, and that's why uh, we really emphasize in the book a very big step is to tell yourself it is a okay to do nothing.
2: I think that's been a big one for me also is the permission, and it's also understanding. Learning how to defend myself if I am doing nothing. It's about learning to be okay with doing nothing and and communicating that. I don't need a litany of activities to tell somebody about what I'm doing.
0: This episode is brought to you by Melissa Miller of Compass Real Estate. When you're buying or selling a home in Santa Barbara or Montecito, You want Melissa's eye for timeless style and her invaluable ability to negotiate the best deal. Melissa is offering virtual or in-person agent services. Give Melissa a call at 805-570-9511 or visit compass.com. So for each of you, this feels like a very decisive moment in your life journey. Spike, in 2003, you wrote a book titled Surrender, But Don't Give Yourself Away, Old Cars, Found Hope, and Other Cheap Tricks. It's a, yes. <laughs> it's a series of essays covering topics that you often write about, your tendencies for some bad choices in life, the wrong men, trying to do too much, and reaching a breaking point. Uh, Keying on surrender and the personal awareness you have, it seems like you've always been close to some kind of acceptance, some kind of serenity. But it turns out you weren't quite there. What was missing? I
1: think now I have a clearer understanding of, of what was missing. I made the choice 20 years ago to stop drinking. Uh, which is something I did not not entirely on my own. I used the help of a therapist and um, Buddhist studies, self help books. But I didn't. What I didn't understand at the time was that there's a thing called emotional sobriety. And so a couple of years ago, maybe about two and a half years ago, because of some events I won't go into, I I had this emotional bottoming out, and I still didn't. I wasn't familiar with the term emotional sobriety yet. But I chose to do some recovery work in addition to working with the therapist. And suddenly I discovered so many of these choices and this chaos that I was that I was courting or creating, whether it was subconscious or conscious, were deeply, deeply rooted. And I hadn't been able to completely excavate the roots through the work I'd been doing on my own. And so I think what was important was for me to come to this realization that emotional sobriety existed, that it was something that I could achieve or work toward. And in doing that, it has helped me to really shift the way I live my life, the way that I make my choices, and to to find more um, serenity, a lot more serenity. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, and that seems to coincide with this project in a sense, and sort of that, that feeling of giving, of loving yourself and accepting yourself for who you are and what you describe. Um, Makes this project feel very fortuitous. So, how do you feel about that, your personal journey and where you are now?
1: It is bizarre to me that Steve and I ever even met each other. And uh, if all three of us were sitting in a room together right now, you might look at the two of us and and just think visually, like, how did you two ever forge a, a collaborative team? And it's what's really interesting to me is that each thing feeds the other. In other words, the collaboration has helped with my personal healing and serenity. And also my growing serenity has helped with the collaboration. And a big, for me, a really big behind the scenes part of it is I uh, I have many, many, many uh, dude friends. I do have men friends. But at the same time, a lot of my, those deep Rooted issues that I mentioned earlier will relate to relationships with men. It's pretty, it's pretty psych 101. It goes back to some issues with my father. So work, so agreeing to collaborate. Steve suggested that we try collaborating, which made I was really excited about, but very nervous about because in general I don't like working with other people at all. Um, And this notion of working with a man, it seemed. Equal parts interesting and kind of daunting. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so the process itself, the way that we treat each other, there's just respect across the board. Uh, we're very careful in how we. I'm I'm terrible with feedback. A lot of my books, I would be uh, not necessarily want to get feedback from an editor or early readers because I know that I'm I was historically a very very reactive person. So going into this, I'm like, well, what if Steve gives me feedback on my writing and I feel really resentful? How's that going to work out? From the beginning, I feel okay speaking for both of us saying that we've both really uh, exhibited a tremendous amount of respect. And that feels very easy uh, when somebody is really respecting me and I feel really heard it's super easy for me to let go of my defensiveness and think, oh, well maybe, yeah, let's try that. Mm -hmm. It's been an amazing, amazing journey.
0: Well, that's nice that you found that you could seek help from others and trust others.
1: That was a hard one. And I'm getting better at it all the time. And I'm also, yeah, it's not, and I'm also getting better, not only at trusting people, but not um, actively seeking out people who don't uh, deserve my trust, Mm -hmm. you know, like looking for people who are super broken or not really interested in working on themselves and swooping in and being like, Mm -hmm. well, let me, I'll just do all the work for you. I'll fix you. That's it. That was a lifelong pattern of mine. It's like, find me the most broken man in the room or the town or the country and just please send him over here and I'll fix everything
0: Okay, (laughs) Steve, you you haven't been in the habit or practice of publicly sharing your feelings, memories, struggles or any personal details until co-writing this book what was the experience like? did you have reservations or fears and was it cathartic?
2: yes, and I am I have always been the kind of person that was not interested in sharing that with the public, with my friends, and even with myself. So it was very, very difficult. Spike and I are working on a novel, and that's much easier for me, a make-believe world. If you ask me about myself, it's, it's a struggle. It's, it's because I'm not used to it. I don't have any practice at it and I'm afraid of it. The tiptoeing into that, I'm less afraid now because I've, I've started to do it more. It's like in the book, I tell a story about learning to swim only a few years ago. I had a lot of preconceptions about that. How am I going to swim? How do I breathe? A lot, so many questions. And in the end, I've learned to swim and I swim a mile a day today and I love it. So it's similar to this writing experience when I am, staring at a page and i'm being asked to write about myself um, instead of making up a story with a character i've invented and i had having been around spike and her comments and suggestions were were the reason i was able to do anything in this book and any writing i uh i was resistant and then uh, her gentle kind of words and carefully chosen words helped me to experiment and to start to write, you know, words down. I do come around to things very slowly. And eventually I made peace with the idea. And it's not about privacy, it turned out. It was that I just didn't have any, I had not thought about it really that much um, about how to express myself and some of these thoughts. So once I started doing that, I kind of found a voice, which is my own, and uh, that was super fun, and I became more assured in who I am, really, because, I mean, there is a confidence in me that Spike's shown in kind of the tone of the book and some, some of our past work, which involves, you know, relaying kind of uh creative ideas back and forth to each other and she's always been enthusiastic about my ideas which is which is really fun
0: well i think that the journey that you're sharing right now is evidence that there is a lot to gain from this book and i think that's awesome well thank you so the complementary nature of your contributions in both perspective and writing styles are a strikingly enjoyable part of this book. A nice rhythm, or harmony as you note, is formed by the two voices and how they are structured on the page. How did this structure come to be?
1: So in this book it's, although I, I offer a lot of personal anecdotes, there's also some studies and stuff. So this is where my journalism background and my memoir writing kind of you know coexist together. And mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't change my style very much. It was very interesting to see when Steve started writing two things. One, that he is the king of left justification and writes, you know, very lyrically and poetically. And then also, as he was saying before, he it was really, really fun to watch him open up and add more and more uh vignettes to his parts, which at first were a little bit uh less. They were, they were always personal, but they became more personal and they gained more depth. So I think I don't really remember discussing, like, I'll write this way and you write that way. And I know some of our early readers at first were sort of like, wow, your voices really change. I have to adjust to this rhythm of one to the other to the other. But then I, they would also say, but, you know, maybe a third of the way into the book, it, it really clicked for them.
2: I've started to also feel like what you were saying, Tony, where, uh, our writing styles really work well together. They kind of have a rhythm and a harmony, like you mentioned. And it's interesting. We just got the print copies in. It's it's really interesting that, you, that the writing even looks different on the page because our, mm-hmm. our designer designed, our sections a little bit differently for me. I found a way into the writing by kind of like remembering some, some books that I used to like, like, I think there was one notebook by Ned Roram from Paris, where it was just kind of random notes that I always liked where I could read maybe his di maybe it was his diary. And so, and then another book was motel chronicles by Sam Shepard, which had like letters in it. And so, um, Interesting. Being a, that gave me the ability to not have to write in, you know, long paragraphs and stuff. So my my little sections are kind of uh, kind of like letters and sentences and snippets.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think I mean, you mentioned at the end of the book that you think I think you said you write and think like a movie script and then and then. um Spike just said that you, your writing is lyrical and poetic, and that was my takeaway, was that it was very poetic in its expression and structure. Um, so really, what I want to ask you to do is read a passage uh, from the book right now. Could you do that?
2: Sure. It's a note from Steve. How do I know about nothing? Ever since I can remember, I like being alone. Being alone is an expression toward nothing. I've also always been quiet and gentle in my footsteps and my word. That's another expression toward nothing. I never feel alone or lonely when I'm alone. Another expression toward nothing. My favorite place to do nothing is a Magnolia tree in Dallas. From ages five to 11, I had a place about seven limbs up and 30 feet off the ground where I climbed to regularly and watched and listened to traffic in the world. By my reconnoitering, it was the highest and safest place in the city.
0: Yeah, I think that uh, that's beautiful. And it's just so neat that you were able to really be in touch with so much of yourself, you know, going back to childhood and then how you feel about yourself now and have felt about yourself, and maybe you weren't in touch with all of those things and you had to figure out how to put them on paper and how to be able to speak about them. It must be a very rewarding experience.
2: It really is. It actually seems to get better every day. I'm not quite sure what's going on with my life, but i um, <laughs> <keep> getting happier. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's, that is great. That is great. Spike, I'd love to hear something from you Uh, Would you mind reading a passage from the book?
1: Sure. I'm going to read a little passage from a section about, uh, it's called Nothing Day. And it's where I took, I did my best to take a full day to do a big chunk of nothing. And this is a a little passage from that. On my nothing day, I woke up a little before 7 a.m. Coming to the surface, realizing this was my day to not do, I went into permission mode decided it was too early to get up, and convinced my body to resume sleeping for another hour. At 8 a.m., I rolled over, delighted to find all three dogs in bed with me. I scooched across the king-size mattress to Norris, my great Pyrenees, obstructed by Popo, my Boston Terrier. whose morning routine is to stand on my chest and stare at me until I get up. But this morning, I quite purposefully had no plan to get up quickly. I spooned Norris and made a point of really feeling and observing his thick white fur, I did this to set an intention to spend the day as aware and present as I could be. Also, I'm a dog fanatic, and this slow rousing was a treat, a chance to show Norris my gratitude for his companionship. Once I did finally make a move to the coffee pot, which resides on top of my mini-fridge directly across from my washer and dryer, I caught myself thinking, might as well throw in a batch of laundry. I immediately dismissed this thought. Then I did my usual routine, drank my latte in the yard while the dogs ran around but I moved at slow-mo pace, sitting outside longer than I normally do. The weather cooperated, warm and inviting, an animated wind coaxing leaves from the trees and creating a natural soundtrack I took the time to listen to. Back inside, my Valdez skipped screen time evaporated immediately. My head was full of thoughts I decided to offload in my journal and brief emails to Carol and Angel, my Queens of Sage Council. I did not criticize myself for this. I framed it as a useful exercise in accomplishing nothing moving worries from my mind to the page with the hope of freeing up space for not thinking good call
0: oh wow that's got there's a lot of good stuff in there conversation that you were having with yourself and thank you yeah there's so many activities that feel so relatable there and they also sort of illustrate the change in perspective that's required to kind of give your pers- give yourself permission and practice doing nothing.
1: It's so easy for me over the course of a day without even thinking about it to do, you know, 12 things at once. Uh, and that is something I'm really unlearning. Yesterday, we were doing an interview and I confessed that I was sweeping my house while we were doing the interview, even though that kind of is counter to to what we're encouraging our readers to do. And I, because I run a business at my house, um, I, I think I I have very often justified like this is not over busyness or I have to do this. I don't have a choice. I have to throw in the laundry. I have to fill the dishwasher. I have to clean up the lawn or whatever. And now that I'm practicing doing nothing consciously, I might look at a pile of laundry, like in that, in that passage and think you can wait till tomorrow. Not, not, not unhealthy procrastination, but acknowledging I do not have to do everything all the time. It's, it's very freeing.
2: I think one thing I've been trying to do the last few days, I've gotten kind of busy, is to wake up and ask less of myself um, for that day, which sounds kind of funny, but um, <laughs> it works. <laughs> it, I, I don't get anything less done, but I don't feel this voice saying, Get going, and so that's what I'm doing. It also allows me to ask less of other people, which uh, makes my life a little more peaceful.
0: Oh, that's that's cool. It it is funny, and it does feel counterintuitive. You know, there's obviously a lot of different methods for making sure that you're productive in a day. I mean, you know, even recently, one of the military commanders that wrote a book talked about, you know, just that practice of making your bed first thing in the morning how that sort of sets the tone for the day and your intention to pay attention to details and get things done
2: i have that book
1: <laughs> <laughs> i didn't make my bed today
2: <laughs> i don't know it's
0: it's an interesting deeper conversation that we can't really explore to its total depths but i just want to hear a little bit more about how each of you squares this, the counterintuitiveness of this. I mean, everything from, you know, there's people that, you know, have to work from, you know, 40 or 50 hours a week. And, you know, it's just not part of the the makeup of being an American, you know, I can, I, I, you know, it just feels like we're not supposed to do nothing. And obviously it's how you define not doing. Um, so there, there's more discussion there. But if you have another thought about discerning that paradox, I think it'd be, be great to hear.
2: Speaking of the military, I actually heard the other day a great one um, that's kind of in, in line with uh, nothing or at least slowing down. But one thing is definitely it's helped me to not rush. And so a Navy SEAL saying, which I think is born from drawing one's gun from a holster, but it's um, slow is smooth and smooth as fast and magically for some reason, the more I practice this sort of nothingness, the more I get done. I don't know why uh, that is. I think it's because I guess rushing is wasteful uh, for some reason. It doesn't feel wasteful That's the problem. It feels when I'm rushing and hurrying and doing things, I feel like I'm getting, I feel like it's the right thing to do, but it might not be. For me, it's it's just slowing down, not rushing. I work the same amount of hours as I ever have, but I'm much more efficient, I think. So that's part of it too, is being efficient. There's certain certainly, I understand people that work like 50 or 60 hours a week. They already have nothing in their lives that, that their hours at work probably aren't going to change, but within those hours, maybe they could find some time.
0: That makes sense. So your timing was significant uh, in in two ways. Sud- suddenly, the amount of time available for not doing increased, and the level of stress also increased. And I believe you guys thought about adapting the book based on current events. What what did you think about changing?
1: The the publishing date was number one. In my memory, I came to him with this idea. I'm like, why don't we put this out now? I mean, this is the perfect time. And I feel like there was a little hesitancy on his part. And then we thought about it and talked about it. And I would say, so. The big, for me, I feel like the biggest thing is putting it out now while people can hopefully you know, get some great benefits from it.
2: So we decided to self-publish, which we could do immediately. And so what we've done is we have our website and we're, as a public service, we're giving the book away for free. It's on our website for free download. We also, I mean, I like in my, a lot of my friends and stuff like print copies. So we're selling those, but obviously unfortunate, but relevant topic. I also think that after the quarantine, when whenever that day comes, people will also want to read the book to recapture and to understand how they can get back to some of the state that they were in uh, during the quarantine, not the negative stuff, but some of the nothing stuff. So I think the book will have a long life.
0: Interesting. Yeah, that, that's a good point. And um, I love the promo video you made. Um, so <laughs> w- w- where, w- where, where, where can people view that? And you mentioned that the that the book was available for free. Where, where can people view the video? Where can they find out um, how to read the free version or stay in touch with you and purchase a, uh, a print copy and so forth?
2: Sleepingbees.com.
0: That's easy. I want to thank my audio engineer, Justin Walker, and I also want to thank you for listening. My goal is to develop a large following, so I want to ask you to take a minute and subscribe to Miller Meets World on Apple Podcasts or follow Miller Meets World on Spotify, and then slide on over to the ratings and give me five stars. Thank you so much.